0: Hello, I'm Clyde Yancy, immediate past president of the American Heart Association and medical director of the Baylor Heart and Vascular Institute in Dallas, Texas. I would like to welcome you to this editorial discussion addressing ethnicity and disparities in cardiovascular disease. I am delighted today to be joined by two colleagues that are very versed and well-experienced in this field, Vivian Rambahar, who is in Toronto, an adjunct professor of Medicine and Cardiology at the University of Toronto and Elizabeth O'Feely, we've known each other for years, who is Chief of Cardiology at Morehouse University in Atlanta, Georgia, and Dean of Clinical Research. So welcome. I'm delighted to have you. you here.
1: Thank you.
0: Let's just get right in this because I am truly excited that we have an opportunity mm-hmm. to bring such an important issue to those that watch theheart.org because cardiovascular disparities are real. So in my own career, I've really been someone who was deeply embedded in getting evidence, doing clinical trials. And we'd get these positive studies, the data would come in hand, get published, and we'd say, this is the way that you should treat this particular condition, heart failure. Mm -hmm. But then you'd realize that it wasn't happening. The needle wasn't moving. And you begin to delve down deeper and you discover that even though we understand the pathophysiology, we've identified evidence-based therapies, patients are having dissimilar outcomes for reasons that are seemingly non-physiologic. And so that gets us to the differences that different groups have. And so both of you represent important constituencies here. So give me a very brief overview, if you will, Vivian, about different expressions of cardiovascular disease in Indians of Asian descent.
2: Well, it's a fascinating subject. 50 years ago, Danaraj and Muir in Singapore did ne- necropsy studies showing four times increased mortality rates between China, sorry between Indians who have migrated to Singapore and the people who live next to, the Chinese and Malays. And between the ages of 40 to 50, it's seven to 10 times. Since then, in the last 50 years, this has been seen everywhere around the world that Indians have migrated, including Canada and the USA, in our suburbs, in our metropolises, and even in the urban centers in South South Asia.
0: So the suspicion is that whatever the predisposition might be to disease, which is quite remarkable, Vivian, given those metrics you just shared with us, it's even more amplified when the migration is to a Western environment, presumably because of stress and diet, is that correct you think?
2: Well, it's, it's been shown that uh, studies f- comparing Punjabis who've moved from India to London, England, their blood sugars rise, their cholesterol rises, etc. Wa- the waist size increases, become more diabetic. So migration by itself, for whatever reason, and urbanization and adopting Western lifestyles increases all your risk factors.
0: So the same thing has been seen with high blood pressure. I mean, if we think about this, Elizabeth, if you look at systolic blood pressures from Western Africa Mm -hmm. through the Caribbean into the United States, you can really track both obesity and blood pressure as it appears to suggest that the migration process in and of itself, but in addition to other factors, is probably in part responsible for changes in the burden of risk. But just like we had Vivian, just give us a brief synopsis of differences in disease in Indians of Asian descent. What about African Americans?
1: I think the probably data on African Americans has actually been very clear for many years now. And that is as you look at the individual risk factors, you mentioned high blood pressure there's a staggering rates of hypertension among African-Americans it's a good 40 percent um, when the rest of the population is more like 25 percent and what's going on now obviously with obesity um, and how that relates to diabetes and, and uh, end-stage renal disease so these the risk burden is, is tremendous and now as you know there's all the discussions about the social determinants of health so you actually begin to go beyond what that patient is sitting in the in the clinic with, but looking at what's happening in the environment and the home.
0: Because remarkably, what we're discovering is that in both scenarios, these aren't just nuanced differences. These are big profile differences and disease burden that really affect outcomes. Now, a couple of things we want to capture here. Tell us more about social determinants of health, because again, We're going beyond our comfort zone. We're comfortable with pathways and biology, and we're comfortable with therapeutics and devices. But now you're talking about community descriptors that impact health. Tell us more about that
1: that is actually very fascinating. So if you listen to social scientists and, and how they discuss this, it, it really becomes apparent that we should have been in, integrating this in all of our risk determination. For example, if you look at some neighborhoods, um, um, high-risk neighborhoods, you find that the ability to maybe be outside and enjoy the outdoors or walk or um, have access to fresh foods is very limited. Um, and you're dealing with very high dense uh, uh, you know, caloric uh, content of food. And it's amazing how we don't readily recognize as we're sitting in the clinic and telling patients, well, you've you got to go out and walk, you've got to do this, and then patients go, well, you know, I can't do all of these very easily. And, and in my view now, physicians really need to integrate this into the discussion of risk as you can't get to, like you said, the bottom of, uh, of, of mitigating that risk.
0: You know, the most illustrative example of what you just said, Elizabeth, is the two of you. I was recently in Montreal and had a chance to walk the streets of Montreal. You know, every once in a while, there was someone who was large or obese, but not everyone I met because right. a lot of people are ambulatory. We're in Chicago right now, and let me just tell you, (laughs) that's the the way it is. But there's something very important we need to address. So Vivian, you talked about differences in the expression of disease in Indians of Asian descent. And Elizabeth, you talked about differences, especially in hypertension, Mm -hmm. in African-Americans. But now we have to really be very definitional here. There are differences that you've outlined, but then there are disparities. Now, if we respect the Institute of Medicine definition, it says that there are several reasons why differences may exist between populations when you normalize access to care. Some of it is physiologic, some of it is volitional. But then there are these other components that fall into these very awkward categories of bias, stereotyping, lack of cultural or linguistic competence things that are embedded in the thought process or the behavior of the system or the provider that has a perverse impact on health. And so, Elizabeth, let me start with you. There's some pretty glaring examples Mm -hmm. of disparate care in the African American community, Mm -hmm. like the rate of limb amputation or the rate of analysis, but Mm -hmm. something more um, germane to everyday practice. Let's talk about heart failure Mm or coronary disease, Mm -hmm. evidence of disparate care. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the interesting thing is for a long time in, in heart failure, we just didn't have any evidence. We said, well, we don't know what works um, in African-Americans, and there's obviously limited data from clinical trials, so physicians were confused, understandably. We could say that's the reason. And then we had additional data from clinical trials, and but physicians were still not implementing that. So there's obviously just some disconnect between the evidence and how that's integrated into practice for a whole host of reasons. There's no question that if you look at the data beyond heart failure in terms of who's going to have what surgery, who's going to be tested when they present with chest pain and the extent of the testing, there's some inherent biases that physicians bring in, perhaps thinking African Americans don't suffer a certain condition. And
0: I think your perspective is spot on because right. it's not that there is an overt attempt to withhold care. Right. It is a belief, a presumption, right. Uh, a knowingness right. that, well, this particular patient, because of gender or age or race or ethnicity, doesn't have the same risk profile. Right. Therefore, I don't have to do X, Y, or Z. Exactly. And it's that reprogramming that needs to happen. Now, what about in the Indian community? Are there examples of disparate care where there is a thought process or a decision-making mode that disadvantages a patient of Indian descent?
2: Well, I think the most important factor there would be the lack of recognition. Uh. For instance, l- let me amplify a bit more about the disparity. And There is tremendous disparity. There are calls to action all over the world for more prevention and treatment in the Indian community. And the disparity is, generally speaking, most people, not all Indian people, develop heart attacks ten years earlier than the rest of the population. They have more severe disease. They have increasing diabetes. For instance, let's say 20 years ago there was 8% of of South Asians or Indians in America were diabetic. Now it's 18%. Hmm. Pre-diabetes up to 33%. There's tremendous disparity. Hmm. And the lack of recognition is The census in the United States would be Asian and Pacific Islanders. That's changing. But within that group, there are low risk, low prevalence uh, communities like the Japanese and the Chinese. And then you average that low risk with a very high risk of the South Asian or Indian community. And you get reasonable. Mm -hmm. And so you do not see the very, very high risk of the Indian community.
0: So Vivian, you really have helped us because you've highlighted one very important point. We have to be very careful that we don't initiate a process of groupthink where a practitioner sees someone and now overcorrects and assumes that everybody who happens to be Indian or everybody who happens to be Hispanic or everybody who happens to be African American has a certain profile. And I think what you're getting at is that within groups, there is at least as much heterogeneity, if not more, than there is between groups. But you also gave us one other thing which highlights the last issue that I'd like for us to discuss. What do we do about this? A lot of people, myself included, have spent a lot of time describing differences, but what do we do about this? Now, Elizabeth, Vivian gave us a great strategy. Just awareness, make people understand that certain groups within the community at large have a different risk profile, so look, be vigilant but build on that some more. So one strategy is awareness. What are other strategies to address disparate care and achieve what some might call health equity?
1: Yeah. I think it's important to, the, you know, the general level of awareness is important, but also applying what we know works. So there are some information about what actually works in African Americans in terms of improving risk, and there's no question that prevention is a big part of that. Uh, prevention in the context of the reality of of that individual's environment. But then also, I think, just coming to grips with this whole issue of social determinants and beginning to address the specific environmental risks that people have. But bringing it back to the clinic, I think we also need to uh, continue to ask questions. Do we have all of the evidence we need in a given individual or group right. in terms of their risk for conditions so
0: three great points you right. made the first one and what's most important i think is the last one you made continuing to get the evidence right. always raising the question always being inquisitive about right. a different presentation or a different circumstance right. the second point you made is also very important It talks about community health, but admittedly, that requires resources to go beyond Beyond the physician space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have to reach out to community activists, public health individuals. But I'd like to end on the comment you made about doing what we know works. Mm -hmm. That was a beautiful (laughs) comment, Elizabeth. (laughs) But it's the idea of invoking a performance improvement process strategy, a quality-driven focus. Because the neat thing about quality is that it's colorblind. Right it's age neutral, Absolutely. it's gender blind, it's ethnicity irrelevant. If you're achieving best quality and doing the right thing for the right patient at the right time as many times as possible, then any phenotype of patient that shows up gets best quality care. Right. And ultimately we have to remember that we're all more similar than we are dissimilar. Absolutely. And so things that work in one person are likely to work in another person, but the different burden of disease, the community determinants of health, and then the way we interpret information right. and interpret the interaction with patients, i.e. these subtle issues of bias, become very important.
1: Right. And it's in this physician sphere. I think that's perhaps the highest uh, point. Physician can control quality. All these other stuff require other people.
2: Right, so <laughs> yeah. that's why quality is so good. Any closing I, yeah. points for yeah. you? If I can add something else. I absolutely agree with the need for evidence and do what works. But there's a very powerful way of achieving change. There are modern ways of achieving change, which is if you can stimulate a grassroots approach somehow, because Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, and even recently, many of the mass movements have started as grassroots approaches. It takes time and effort and organization to do policy and evidence If the community can somehow be shown the information and it will stimulate them to buy into the need to change, to create change, you can remove disparities just by their action at a community level and a grassroots approach.
0: Well, I think that is correct, and all of these strategies really make sense. This really has been a great discussion. I hope that you, the viewer of this program, have been enlightened. There is such an issue as disparate care. It's not that we're doing bad things, but it's a function of how we've been trained, what our experience has been, what our presumptions are. We all have a viewpoint, a perspective, a subtle bias, if you will, about lots of things. But on occasion, it actually enters the healthcare decision-making process, and then different outcomes are the result. My friends and colleagues here have really helped us tremendously. We have some definitions of what's a difference, what's a disparity. We have some descriptions of important differences in targeted groups. But then we ended with, how can we do something about this? We can raise awareness. We can get members of communities to own their own health. And as Elizabeth said, we can do the right thing and do what works embrace quality and make that part of our cause du jour if you will so I think this has been a fascinating discussion I can't thank you enough for being here and I hope that as we continue these discussions we'll see these differences go away Absolutely. and that would be the best strategy of all
1: yes, thank, you
0: thank, you. Vivian, thank you very much thank you thank you for viewing this program on the heart.org